0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense. A podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I've got a little bit of a sore throat, but I'm treating that by drinking some nice hot tea with a little bit of honey in it. You know what kind of spoon I use to stir that honey into my tea? That's right, a tablespoon. Because it's the only kind of spoon that's worth a damn. That's why they call it a tablespoon. Because you may as well just leave it on the table, on account of it's the only spoon you're going to need. You know what they should call teaspoons? Drawer spoons. Because they can stay in the fucking drawer. You know what pisses me off about teaspoons? Besides the fact that they're too damn small to be of any real use, they're hogging the name that I would like to use as a nickname for my good friend, The Tablespoon. I use tablespoons so much, I'd like to start referring to them by a shorter, more informal name. But if I see my good friend, The Tablespoon, and I'm like, Hey, Teaspoon, what's up? Then these little pipsqueaks of the silverware drawer are going to chime up and be like, Hey, Teaspoon, that's me. No, it's not. Teaspoon is what I call my friend the tablespoon, because we're friends. You're a drawer spoon, and also spoons can't talk. Anyway, as you might be able to tell, I've had a few tablespoons of cough medicine, so we should probably start talking about a comic book before I get any less lucid. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhae, and it's particularly appropriate for this Crisis on Infinite Earths issue. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Red sky in the story, let's talk about it with Cory. Red sky round the clock, Cory says Ragnarok. Red sky in Gotham, it's Kid's WB's Batman, son. Red sky at nine, guess it's another slant rhyme. Red sky at ten, Thing asks, what happen? Red sky over the Swiss, it's a synopsis. Thanks, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 14, November 1985. The light within, the dark without. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Bob LePan, colored it by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call, Starfire, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Jericho, Cole, Wonder Girl, Nightwing, Raven, and Zach Wingman, who probably doesn't qualify as a Teen Titan anymore now that he's no longer hanging out with our heroes and also might be a few hundred years old. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Beast Boy's stepfather, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, has been having a rough go of it lately. In addition to having Beast Boy for a stepson, the perturbed plutocrat possessed a plethora of other problems. For years now, Steve has struggled with an addiction to wearing a magic hat. The hat in question was named the Mentos Helmet, so I called it the Freshmaker for obvious reasons. And whenever Steve put the Freshmaker on, he gained reality-warping powers, but also got all loopy and pissed off. As if this harrowing headgear habit weren't bad enough, the affluent apparel addict recently found out that he was dying of a mysterious illness. When Beast Boy found out about his father's condition, the aggrieved anamorphic asshole decided that Steve Dayton had decided to die as a punitive measure against him personally he yelled at his dying dad and stormed out of the house. What an asshole! Speaking of Titans with parent problems, ever since apparently killing her extra-dimensional demonic bad dad Trigon several months ago, Raven has been missing and presumed dead. Her mother Arella searched tirelessly for the absentavian empath, but without result. Then, just a few weeks ago, rumors surfaced in rural Alabama about a mysterious reclusive woman with strange healing powers who had recently appeared. Mmm. Speaking of strange people popping up unexpectedly, a spaceship from Starfire's home planet of Tamaran just showed up at the Titan Tower. For years now, Coriander had been exiled to Earth while her family fought an intergalactic battle against a race of slave-mongering Farty space lizards. Now that the war was over, her parents had sent their fastest spaceship, helmed by the intrepid Captain Corass, to inform the spicy space princess that she was finally free to return home. While Starfire celebrated her impending homecoming, half a world away, an amnesiac alien angel of our adolescent adventurer's acquaintance had finally found a home of his own. At the Church of Brother Blood! Our hero's forgetful former frenemy, Zack Wingman, had run afoul of the church's leader, Mother Mayhem, who convinced the winged wanderer to seek solace in her sanguinary sect. The perfidious pontiff told Zack that his new name was Azrael and that he was vital to the church's plans. Gratified that someone besides me and Corey finally thought he was worth naming, Zack agreed to join up. Anything else? Just this. The entire multiverse was on the verge of collapse in space and time, and everything else had gone all higgledy-piggledy, as the result of a crisis on infinite Earths. Gadzooks! Is Steve Dayton's undefined illness related to his hat addiction? Since her apparent demise, has Raven been hiding out in the rural South? And what effect will the crisis on infinite Earths have on this issue? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yes. Yes. And the sky is prettier and Terry Long has to stay in Greenwich Village, but other than that, not much. Following up on some rumors, Arella questions some tobacco farmers in Alabama about the stranger with healing powers who fell from the sky a few weeks ago. A man named Bob Johnson, with a nearly indecipherable phonetically spelled out accent, and the weirdest goddamn hat this side of Asgard, fills her in. See, me and my fellow southern stereotypes were hanging out in the field with our tractors and accents and whatnot, leaving letters off the end of random words and using unnecessary apostrophes, you know, like you do, when that lady you just showed us a picture of fell out of the sky. At first, she looked like a bird but then her clothes exploded and she just looked like a naked lady. One of us put a shirt on her, which was nice, and no great loss to him, because as near as I can tell, he had never really figured out how to button that thing to begin with. He'd been wearing it unbuttoned down to his navel like that Nightwing fellow I read about in People magazine. Man, I couldn't believe those Titans kids just told the reporters their real names. Those kids sure are terrible at secret identities, aren't they? Anyway, we took the now-only-mostly-naked lady to the hospital, she was in a coma for about a week, but then she got up and grabbed an old lady's head. The orderlies tried to stop her, but then it turned out that she had healed the old lady's wounds, so that was okay. Over the next little while, she healed up a bunch of people, so we let her stay in the shack. Also, she had amnesia, and also, also, it looks like she just moved out of the shack and didn't leave a forwarding address. Arilla thanks Bob for the exposition by not making fun of his ridiculous hat and implausible accent. Back at the Titan Tower... Captain Karis. Karos? Alex Karos? Captain George Papadopoulos tells Starfire that he's there to take her back to Tamaran so that she can see her family and get back to princessing. Coriander is stoked at the prospect of seeing her folks, but is bummed to leave her pals behind. Dick pipes up and is like, I'm still a little miffed at you for liking to kill people in battle, but you're probably my girlfriend or something, so I'm going with you. Jericho chimes in and signs, I'm not dating either of you, but Starfire, if I get to go to space, I am cool with you killing whoever you want. Woohoo! Space! Cole interjects and says, Jericho, don't you want to stay here and have sex with me instead of going to space? But Jericho is like, nope, space. Donna says she'd like to go too, but her husband is stuck in some sort of a time vortex in Greenwich Village, so she'd better stay put. Joey, Dick, and Coriander beam up to Captain Papadopoulos' ship and blast off to Tamaran. None of them seem to notice that Captain Papadopoulos is acting kind of weird. Meanwhile, at the Church of Blood's compound in Buzzard Bay, Massachusetts, Azrael, nay, Zach Wingman, is a little unsettled by all of the demon skulls and pools of blood his new buddies have lying around. He's like, Say, new buddies... I can't help but notice that you just named me after the Angel of Death, and also, you're super into all this demonic-looking stuff, and keep chanting about blood. You guys aren't evil, are you? Mother Mayhem replies, Um, no? Zack's like, good enough for me. Let's get back to chanting about blood. While Wingman and his not-at-all suspicious pals are getting to know one another, An unsettling scene is beginning to unfold in the East Hamptons. At palatial Dayton Estates, Steve Dayton has put on his magic hat. Uh Uh-oh. Steve has gone full Freshmaker and is wearing a colorful costume and chasing his employee Questor around the house, firing mental blasts at the beleaguered butler. A frantic Questor calls the Titan Tower and pleads for Beast Boy and his teammates to save him from the murderous hat junkie. Cyborg answers the phone and tells the anxious administrator that help is on the way. He turns to Beast Boy and fills him in, but Gar is like, No way! I'm still mad at Steve for being about to die. If he wants to murder one of the only people in the world who gives a shit about me, that's his problem. Then the shape-shifting shitheel turns into a bird and flies away. Vic leaps out the window after his emerald amigo and tells him to stop being an asshole. Gar doesn't want to stop being an asshole, so they try to beat each other up for a few pages. Eventually, Cyborg prevails, and the remaining Earthbound Titans mobilize to keep one of Beast Boy's father figures from murdering the other one. When the gang arrives in the Hamptons, a badly injured Questor uses his remaining energy to sass the shit out of Beast Boy, and inform our heroes that Steve Dayton has been wearing his magic hat again, and due to its influence, has flipped his proverbial wig. Steve believes that he has been able to use the Freshmaker suit to successfully cure himself of his mysterious malady, but when Questor tried to inform his employer that it was use of his mystical helmet that caused his brain to hemorrhage in the first place, Dayton flew into a rage and began attacking him. Once he's done sassing and expositing, the gang loads Questor into an ambulance. An ashamed Beast Boy admits that he has been keeping his stepfather at arm's length because he's afraid of losing yet another parent. That's why he started acting like such an asshole when he found out Steve was dying. Oh. Well, that explains why he's been acting like an asshole for the past few days, but what about the other 16 years? The Titans track Dayton down to a swanky club for rich jerks in Manhattan. Steve is using his Mentos helmet to beat the crud out of a bunch of snobby rich businessmen. Hooray! I guess the rich jerks kicked Dayton out of their club when he started hanging out with superheroes, and now he's getting revenge, Freshmaker-style, pummeling the plutocrats with pulverizing mental blasts and setting their building ablaze. Unfortunately, the Titans arrive in time to save the imperiled oligarchs from a more permanent punishment, but at least they get beat up pretty good, and their club burns down. Hooray! Our heroes try to tell Steve that he's out of control, but he's not having it. Gar delivers an impassioned speech about how he's never said it before, but he loves his dad and would like him to take off his magic hat, please, and get some help. It's a nice sentiment. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Steve uses the Freshmaker to create a tunnel into which he escapes. Then he closes the opening behind him before his teenage tormentors can give chase. The Titans in general, and Gar in specific, vow to make sure that Steve Dayton gets the help he needs no matter what it takes. In the sewers beneath the city, Steve broods and thinks to himself that he doesn't need any help at all. He's doing just fine. To prove his sanity, he blows up some rats with his mind, then takes a nap. Well, I'm convinced. Epilogue. As Captain Papadopoulos's ship, the... Seriously? The Explorer prepares to land on Tamaran... A pair of very interested, pupilless eyes watch it from afar on a viewscreen. These eyes are situated beneath some very stylized evil eyebrows. That's right. Starfire's good-for-nothing sister, Blackfire, is back from the dead. She glowers angrily. At least it looks like she glowers angrily. It might just be the eyebrows. And swears revenge upon her unsuspecting sister. TO BE CONTINUED You know what's weird? The last time Steve Dayton tried to kill the Titans with his magic hat was in the 14th issue of the New Teen Titans last series. I wonder if that's a common trope that I'm just unfamiliar with. Issue 1 is an origin story, Issue 2 introduces the title's signature villain, and issue 14 is attempted murder by father figure with a magic hat. Looks like I got some research to do. And as our eagle-brained listeners will remember, my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, accidentally got himself banished to Niflheim. Fortunately, seems like a pretty nice part of Niflheim. I actually had the pleasure of visiting him there recently, with the intent of rescuing him, but seems like he is, uh... Not in need of rescue as such. So, joining us via a portal from the nice part of Niflheim is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going?
1: Hey, it's going pretty great. Sorry about the, uh, being over-ensorcelled and unable to be rescued, but, um, I think I'll only be stuck here for another month or so.
0: Oh, sure, that's when the, uh, crisis will probably reboot everything. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So, how's it going? Good.
1: Enjoying some sunshine and some fine weather and a uh, pretty exciting comic book.
0: Excellent. Well, let's just dive in and get into that comic book, shall we? Sure. So, Corey, what did you think about this comic book?
1: I thought it was fun to see Mento stretch his wings as a... Uh, a I don't know if he's a new bad guy for us or at least... To, to me, um, he seems kind of like a new bad guy. I mean, we've
0: definitely seen him before. He showed up in, I think it was issue 14 of the last series as the main bad guy that I think Raven pretended she was his dead wife. Remember? No, I don't. It was the precursor to the thing where Beast Boy tried to kill the person who he thought was responsible for his mom's death. Oh, they fought yeah. Mento in the South America. None oh. of that rings a bell.
1: Wait, yeah, this is the the Iran-Contra-type story arc? No. Hmm.
0: That was with Jericho. Oh, man. This was the one where there was the Flying City full of bad guys?
1: Oh, the Flying City. Okay, yep. You you don't remember it, do you? (laughs) Nope, but I I take your word for it.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: (laughs) Dude, I, I know we're only up to issue 14 of the current one, but I feel like... There's a lot of history already. It's a little hard for me to keep it all straight.
0: Yeah, there really is. And I think that's part of what the idea behind Crisis was, because you are bringing the history of, like, the Teen Titans and Gar's old stuff with Doom Patrol into this, too. And just the very idea that there is this weight of previous continuity, I think, was something that they were trying to alleviate with Crisis. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you feel like the story read as its own story as opposed to something that was happening within Crisis?
1: I feel like it was okay. There were some things referenced in it that I didn't remember reading in in the previous issues, and I don't know if that's just a me forgetting Mento again thing or if they're alluding to things that maybe happened in in Crisis but didn't happen in the, the Titans books. For example, Terry being trapped in a warp zone and being happy there.
0: Right. That was something that happened a little bit in Crisis and also in Firestorm, which was its own Crisis tie-in thing. And there was kind of a lot of that in this book, I felt like. But I felt like it was handled pretty well. I think when you're reading a comic book, there's a certain level of, I'm just going to miss some of the previous backstory stuff that's happening. And so it, in a way, keeps you immersed and engaged. And especially when there's a big event like Crisis on Infinite Earths, you just kind of have to roll with the punches on that. And I think this issue did a pretty good job for the most part of alluding to things, but still have it being like, okay, I don't actually need to know that knowledge. And just the fact that it's there lends some texture to the universe, just like in our universe. I don't know all of what's happening or very much of it, to be frank.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, overall that stuff didn't seem too jarring to me. I was able to get through the story and enjoy it.
0: Yeah, and unlike I think the last issue in this one there is much more advancing of previously established Titans plot lines or establishing new plot lines going forward for the Titans than there had been previously. And uh I enjoyed that. I thought it was a pretty decent issue.
1: Yeah, never saw nothing like it before. <laughs> oh Bob Johnson. Oh man, there is some serious accent work in here.
0: Yeah, the phonetically spelled out accents are kind of a trademark of Wolfman's work, and he definitely does it again in this one.
1: Yep, and I'm sure this will come up in panels and sartorially speaking, but I feel like he also subtly introduced what might be my new favorite fictional southern rock slash country band, who I'm going to call Tractor Boys.
0: I like it so we talked a little bit about the fact that there are some things that are alluded to in crisis and i did a dumb thing what's that well you remember how last episode we talked about how i went and saw the movie cats and it knocked a bunch of knowledge out of my brain because i was trying to figure out what the fuck just happened
1: yeah i'm still shaking my head about that choice well
0: I didn't go see Cats again.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank goodness.
0: But I may have done something equivalent in terms of absorbing way too much knowledge that probably knocked some important shit out. I don't know what. I read all of Crisis on Infinite Earths this morning. (laughs) In one go? Yeah. Oh, man. So if you have any questions about stuff that happened in the issue that was alluded to, I can maybe answer them. One of the things that I think is a little bit confusing about it, or at least it was to me, was that the Titans kept talking about the fact that, well, it looks like the crisis is over, so back to business as usual, despite the fact that, like, time still seemed to be unstuck and the skies were still red and there was clearly still some shit going down. I think this story takes place in a lull in the action of Crisis on Infinite Earths. There are about four or five times in the story where they think they're all done and that they've defeated the bad guy, and I think this takes place after one of the first two of those, because first Supergirl gives up her life and dies defeating the Anti-Monitor, and then The Flash kind of does the same thing, and... After that happens, they're like, okay, so things are a little bit different, but it looks like our planet has been saved. Guess this is all over. And I think this whole story takes place during one of those times.
1: Okay, that makes sense because the uh, Tamaranian captain guy, what's his name? Um.
0: Karas. Although we can call him uh, George Papadopoulos.
1: Oh yeah, so Papadopoulos is like, hey, everything's fine, and then also the Titans do say everything's fine. But in most of the outside panels, the sky still looks all curbly curbly, curvy crackly <laughs> and mixed up. Yeah, so that that's one
0: thing. And then we talked a little bit about Terry being unstuck in time. One of the things that happens in Crisis is that a bunch of the parallel Earths that are in Crisis are attempting to merge and are touching at one point. And apparently that point kind of is Greenwich Village. And in that area, the rules of time don't apply. So there's cavemen and dinosaurs and spaceships and shit going on all in that area. And I guess that's where Terry is stuck.
1: In Timeless Greenwich Village? Yep. Oh.
0: They've quarantined off the area, more or less, but the people that are in there are stuck in there, and the people outside aren't allowed to go in without special permit. Ah. So that's where Terry is. I see. One of the other things that comes up, which directly affects the storyline, is that in one of the later issues, we see that Captain Karras actually makes an appearance. I'm sorry, we see that Captain George Papadopoulos (laughs) actually makes an appearance, and we see that aboard the spaceship on the way to Tamaran, he has a secret that he is keeping from Coriander. Mm -hmm. So we are not privy to what that secret is, but we do see that Jericho overhears that there is a secret. And we see that that secret is in some way complicated by the fact that Coriander has brought along her lover, which is a phrase that she uses. So I guess we'll see what that is.
1: Well, don't they sort of explain it in the epilogue of this one?
0: With Blackfire? Yeah. No, I think that's actually unrelated. I don't think Karas knows that Blackfire is still alive.
1: Ew. Well, that's exciting.
0: Yes. So that's all that really impacts this story directly, but there are definitely some events that pretty dramatically affect some Teen Titan alumni that happens in the crisis on Infinite Earths. We got some deaths. Oh, no. I mentioned that the Flash dies. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was not a Teen Titan, but that definitely affects Wally West, who is now all better from his running sickness that he had. It no longer kills him when he uses speed, although he can now only run as fast as the speed of sound. Mm. He also has taken over duties as the Flash and is no longer Kid Flash. So he's carving all the turkeys in the (laughs) West household these days.
1: Uh, Finally.
0: We also have the death of Dove, Hawk's partner slash brother. He gets killed in a battle, which is a real bummer. His uh,
1: pacifism didn't
0: work out? Nope, not so much. Mm. So Hawk is left partnerless for the time being. And the one that got to me the most was Aqua Girl. Aqua Girl dies fighting Camo in the waters off of New York City. Oh, no. Yeah. So no longer does that underwater go-go dancing thrill burglar get to grace the pages of our comic books.
1: Oh, that's a shame.
0: It is. I'm going to miss Tula, and Aqualad is pretty torn up about the whole thing.
1: I bet. Other than that, I
0: think I mentioned it last issue, Wonder Woman now hasn't been born yet. She gets hit with some kind of a ray gun type magic nonsense weapon. It doesn't kill her, but her history gets mostly erased and she gets turned back into the clay she was originally made from. So once the crisis is over, they're going to newly make her out of clay and she'll be reintroduced as a new hero. It's still unclear how that's going to impact Wonder Girl, and I... Honestly don't remember, and I'm curious how they're going to pull that out. I think she's just going to be kind of in retcon limbo for a little bit. Okay. But the main thing that I learned from the Crisis reread was that there is a running series of panels along the bottom margins of one issue in which Harbinger is keeping a diary and... It's really, really beautifully drawn. It's George Perez. He once again does the uninked, uncolored thing, which lends this kind of aura of both noir and surrealism to those panels of Harbinger keeping her diary. But one of the things that she mentions is the planet Mebranu, which is an example of a peaceful paradise world that was destroyed, but... It is a world that was apparently populated entirely by sentient methane gas. So, (laughs) Marv Wolfman just offhandedly created a planet of living
1: farts and then said that it was destroyed and what a tragedy that was. What do you think happened? Like one of them tried smoking for the first time and just the whole planet went up?
0: I think it was probably some kind of an internal conflict about... The origin of the planet and who, in fact, had smelt it and thereby dealt it. (laughs) And just sparked a big civil
1: war. (laughs) Whole place
0: went up like a Roman candle.
1: Mm -hmm. That would be awful if there were sentient farts. They would follow you around in earnest.
0: They really would. And you would probably feel bad about eating them up to be polite. If,
1: if if one were to do such a thing, perhaps, I don't know. I might be more inclined to just light a match. Wow. You'd be a horrible murderer then. Yeah, I guess that's, I mean, maybe that's how the planet went up. Could be.
0: So let's talk about some of the other little plot lines that get developed in this. It's been a while since we've seen Arella, Raven's mom, but we pick up two different storylines that I hadn't realized were Related that were begun earlier. We have Arella searching for Raven, and we see that Raven was the woman who was alluded to a few issues ago by the people carrying the injured woman through the rain in Alabama. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that little story arc?
1: I thought it was nice that they they tied it back in. I was wondering what was going on in in Alabama that had that little shout out in the previous issue that you mentioned. I'm glad Raven's back. I thought there was an extremely high Arella count on the page in which she's introduced. I think the exposition has her name like four times in one page, which to me read a little bit clunky, but in a funny way.
0: Yeah, there was some weird phrasing on that page in general. It was a narrative technique that I'm most familiar with from listening to Robert Evans' book on tape, The Kid Stays in the Picture, where... The narrator asks rhetorical questions and then answers them in a surprising way. Is it worth it, Arella? The pain you've endured these past months? The cold? The rain? Just to find her? Is it worth it, Arella? Is it truly worth it? Without a doubt, yes. Like, oh, okay. That's a fun little switcheroo there. But Mm -hmm. also an oddly antagonistic omniscient narrator that we've got there.
1: Yeah, and then in the following panels, it's asking Arella a bunch of questions, too, that makes it sound as though the narrative voice thinks she's kind of a dummy. It's like, can you see the sky, Arella? Can you smell the tobacco, Arella? <laughs> can you do this? Can you do that? I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's the crux.
0: Yeah, no, I, I kind of like the idea. I think the universe makes sense if you have a taunting, condescending, omniscient narrator.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe it's one of the uh, the sentient methane beings that made an escape and is grouchy now. Oh, I like that idea. Unreliable, stinky narrator.
0: Speaking of larger theological questions that are brought up in this book, what did you think about the Church of Blood slash
1: Zach Wingman storyline? Well, it's good that they've finally given Zach Wingman a purpose. I mean, we kind of been wondering what his deal is the whole time and why they've spent so much time talking about him. Yeah. What is his purpose, though? Well, I mean, they kind of only get into it superficially in that he's there to kind of lend credence to the argument that the uh, church has some divine connection and hopefully shore up the, the faith or the fervor of his congregation.
0: Okay, so you think he's just brought in to be kind of a figurehead and a symbol for the followers.
1: that's basically what what's her name mother mayhem says like hey
0: we got an angel (laughs) pretty good (laughs) you'd think if they were trying to inspire that kind of hope and shit they would maybe move away from all of the like demons and demon skulls
1: and blood Mm -hmm. i know and that's like so the thing that was troubling about that little bit to me was the kind of rapid turnaround because uh zach wingman aka azrael Uh, I guess, even though he's named after the Angel of Death, always seemed like kind of a timid character. And the first thing he Mm -hmm. says is like, this church is frightening. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. That's just to scare away the bad spirits.
0: Yeah. I don't think it works that way. Like, Zach is very immediately placated by that explanation. He's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But does it? I mean, you'd think Evil would be pretty into, like, demon skulls and blood iconography and shit like that. Like, that's their bread and butter. That would be like trying to frighten me away with, like, 90s basketball trivia and pies.
1: (laughs) No, I think that's a pretty universal thing, is that, like, symbols that are scary to people are empowering in the sense that yeah they're they're supposed to scare away the stuff that we're scared of like halloween dressing up in costumes or when i was in indonesia for a little while and they have this festival to like where they scare away all the demons by building these ginormous super creepy paper mache parade floats and then they set them all on fire
0: oh maybe indonesian demons just hate traffic i mean if i saw that there was going to be a parade i'd probably stay home too do you think that maybe churches should play more metal music?
1: More metal music to scare away the devil? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, I could never figure out if Shout at the Devil was like pro or anti-devil.
0: Yeah, is Shout at the Devil more like, hey, devil, come on!
1: Or or is it just like, ah! I don't know. I think they just thought it sounded cool.
0: I mean, I think with Black Sabbath, it's more obvious that they think the devil's a real dickhole. Mm-hmm. Which was why the criticism of that always was confusing to me. It's like, yeah, they talk about the devil, but it's pretty clear that they think he's an asshole Mm -hmm. and they want him to knock it off. Yeah. But yeah, with Motley Crue, I think there was a little bit more ambiguity in their stance on the devil. Mm -hmm. But maybe they were just trying to scare off other devils.
1: Yeah, could be. But I I also thought it was a remarkable kind of flip-flop for Zach Wingman to be like, I'm freaked out and scared to like, oh, this is actually awesome. And now I'm super into it because you're saying nice shit about me. Mm -hmm. And she brings him up on stage. She's like, come stand here next to me while I talk to 200 people. And he's like, okay, that sounds awesome. Oof. <laughs> That's not natural.
0: You wouldn't think so, but we don't know where Zach is from. He did crash a spaceship, so presumably he's from somewhere in space where maybe public speaking is more a normal
1: way of the world. Hmm. looks like something you need to feel happy. Yeah. Get
0: up in front of a large crowd. Yeah, who can explain alien physiology? Not me. I mean, we still haven't figured out for sure whether Zach's got a cloaca. One of the things I was curious if we had somehow missed between issues in like the lapse of time, are Jericho and Cole romantically involved now or did Cole just forget that they aren't?
1: I got the sense that they're not and she just really wants that to be the case. And she's just kind of waiting for him to come around.
0: Yeah, he says that he's going... And she's like, oh, I'll go too. And he's like, nah. And she's like, why not? I thought you loved me like I love you. I don't, I can't, I just love you. And he has previously spurned her advances and pretty clearly told her that he loves her like a friend. So yeah, I was wondering if maybe they had furthered that storyline at some point when I wasn't paying attention.
1: No, and I think it's pretty clear based on the way his face is drawn on page six, where he kind of covers the lower part of her face and pushes her away and then begrudgingly gives her a hug. But I can see he's sort of like going, ah, shaking his head. There's little like motion things. By his head in that second to last panel. It also looks like she's trying to eat his cape. Mm-hmm. And he's just so, he's over it. It's like, ugh. Always telling me she loves me, trying to eat my cape.
0: You think that's what the fist clench, they do a close up of him doing in the next panel, is about? Mm hmm. I also was. A little bit unclear whether Dick and Coriander had maybe broken up in some way, because we do see that he says, I don't know what's going on between us, but if you're leaving, I feel like I should go with you. I thought it had been pretty established that they were dating. I know he was a little bit worried about her murder problem, but it seemed like they had a pretty solid relationship.
1: I didn't read it as they broke up or anything, but yeah, she's getting back to her more Tamaranian self, and he's freaked out by that.
0: I wonder if maybe he's also trying to distance himself publicly from her using the word lover. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what we're calling it. I mean, not that, but uh, w- whatever's happening between us. This is my special friend <laughs> who I'm going to space with. I did think it was absolutely endearing how into going to space Jericho was.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's understandable. That's a pretty exciting opportunity.
0: It's the kind of journey that is, I think, treated kind of lightly in comic books in general. So to have somebody just be like, wait a minute, I get to go to fucking space and see space shit? Oh, hell yeah, I'm going. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of nice.
1: There's one other thing while we're talking about the stuff that happened on page six. The scene in which Donna and, and Coriander are hugging and Beast Boy just being his usual creeper self, saying, Hey, can I get a hug too? Did you catch the Tamarinian dude in the background? He's got his arms folded and he's just like scowling at Beast Boy. Just like, what a jerk.
0: Yeah. Uh, this asshole. Glad mm. <laughs> he's not coming. Let's talk about Beast Boy a little bit. All right. What a piece of shit. Well
1: yes and no what no in the sense that i okay i know we've been fooled before at least twice that he's coming around or starting to get his shit together but he does tell steve dayton that he loves him and i felt like that was hard for him especially on account of his uh all the parental figures i love get murdered so i can't show feelings thing
0: Sure, and also probably physically difficult, because as he is saying it, he is a lion, and it's got
1: to be difficult to talk. Well, lions have big hearts. (laughs) Maybe that helps. (laughs) I can only say I love you if I'm in my lion shape. Hold on. (laughs) It's going to come out funny because it's hard to talk, though. Good point.
0: You're right. Lions do have big hearts. Thank you. But I don't feel that that makes up for the disregard that he shows for Questor's well-being, who has always been there for him. Like, he's pissed at Steve Dayton because he's conflicted about the whole, like, oh, he's my dad and he's gonna die, and I want to, like, distance myself from that relationship so I don't get hurt. I get that that's kind of happening, but I was so jarred and so off-put by the fact that Cyborg is like... Hey, Gar, Steve Dayton's trying to kill Questor. He's like, so? I don't like Steve Dayton. Yeah. Listen to the second half of the sentence. And he doesn't throughout. Like, he doesn't show any concern for Questor's well-being until he gets there and sees that the guy's almost dead.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's very consistent with some of the things we don't like about the character. He's just, like, painfully self-centered until cyborg kind of beats literally beats into him (laughs) this is not cool we have to go you know see what's going on and save quest War.
0: yeah cyborg did a pretty good job talking to him in that regard and i loved that he jumped out of the window and caught a bird in his hand that was fucking rad as hell
1: It was. It reminded me of when we were out walking when you were visiting and that little girl was chasing pigeons (laughs) around. And I was like, man, those are so hard to catch, even for a a fleet-footed young person like that. I wonder how a cyborg caught that bird. Yeah, well, she didn't catch any of them. Oh, no.
0: Also, that girl was like, what, three? That was what was so impressive,
1: how close she was getting to catching those birds.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe when she grows up, she can be cyborg. Maybe. Maybe. Do you think potentially one of those birds was secretly her best friend who was a total asshole?
1: (laughs) No, I don't. It also reminded me, was it Drunken Master? I forget which Jackie Chan movie he has, or Snake and Eagle Shadow, where he has to chase the chickens around all day as part of his training.
0: I think that was the first Drunken Master. Uh. The one which the dubbed version of had the classic line after he hits somebody in the balls with a stick, oh,
1: Did that hurt your balls? (laughs) Uh, That is some good translation. Yeah, that's some good dialogue. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's two reasons why it's so impressive to me that he caught that Beast Boy bird. It was very impressive.
0: And he did a good job of talking sense into Beast Boy at that point. And they had some really fun banter after that, which I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. The quickness with which once cyborg started walking away gar was like oh shit he called my bluff was pretty revealing i think Mm -hmm. cyborg's like yeah fuck it look i'm doing this if you want to stop being an asshole and come with me do it either way i'm done with this conversation give me a ring if you grow the fuck up and uh yeah beast boy chases after him and is like ring 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 and cyborg ignores him for a minute and beast boy's like what and he's like i never pick up on the first ring pretty great indeed we also see that steve dayton going full fresh maker decides to invade his old
1: gentleman's club it's more of a country club or not that kind of gentleman's club oh yeah
0: no i didn't mean like strip club i meant more like like Hellfire Club. (laughs) I thought that was a pretty fun scene. And I liked Cyborg's running commentary on like, man, can't believe I'm saving these stuck up assholes who are probably racist. Yeah, that was pretty great. It was difficult to root for Steve Dayton not destroying those guys because I was like, yeah, go ahead, destroy those guys. They're being real dicks. They're talking shit about your dead wife. Not cool.
1: Not cool at all. I was wondering if we got the last names of a couple of them. One of them is Smithfield, which made me wonder if he was heir to the, the ham empire.
0: Oh, probably. I'm not familiar with this particular ham
1: Oh, fancy hams.
0: Let's say yes.
1: We got a Smithfield, we got a Witherspoon, because that's a rich bad guy name.
0: Yeah, I can see that. He could also potentially be related to former basketball player Clarence Witherspoon. Probably not. One of the things, too, that uh, Cyborg says in that is uh, maybe they'll let me join their millionaires club after I rescue them. Yeah, and then maybe they'll all vote for Richard Pryor for president. I thought that was kind of fun.
1: Yeah, that was fun. This, I guess, is probably right around, if not the peak of his popularity, certainly when he was a a big part of the uh, popular media. Looks like Blackfire's back. Any thoughts on that? Uh, it's not going to go well. For who? For her? For anybody. Yeah. She just seems like a real jerk.
0: She does. And I'm still mad at her for having a rad name and choosing a dumb code name. Like Blackfire's a dumb name and her name is Commander. Mhm. Why don't you just go with Commander? Spoiled. That's what she is. Spoiled brat. You got one rad actual name and you still decide you want to have some code names? Mhm. May as well call yourself code name Commander. Although that's even better.
1: Her getup is is pretty cool. She has the same I forget the name of the little thing that like keeps your cloak clasped. Brooch? Yeah. She's got the same one that Starfire has, but on her it just looks out of place cuz it's like it looks like a little daisy.
0: It does. It is weird seeing that on her and there are a couple of other touches. She seems like she's got a filigree that looks like a floral pattern on her like gauntlet and on the edge of her cloak and just doesn't go with the chain around her neck and the skull earrings which are definitely a pretty metal look Mm -hmm. it's kind of confusing also her haircut is on point she has starfire-esque volumes of hair Mm -hmm. in a way that i don't think she had hair that big before it seems like if she had hair that big she could probably fly and I think one of her big motivating things was that she couldn't fly and Starfire could. So I think now maybe she's got Texas-style teased up hair enough that uh, she'll be able to get some elevation.
1: Ah, that's the secret. Yeah. While we're talking about Tamarinians, I think it's funny that their apostrophe R's apply to their vehicles as well as their names.
0: Oh, I didn't catch that. Do we learn the name of the ship?
1: Yeah, it's the Explorer...
0: <laughs> I can't believe I missed that. That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> With an x. Ex. Explorer. <laughs> oh boy. Man does Marv Wolfman love his apostrophes. That's how you know if you're uh, from space. I mean, do you think Bob Johnson is from
1: space? Oh no, he's just southern.
0: He's got all those apostrophes.
1: Uh yeah, no. I I I think that's different. His, I mean, his accent is very phonetically not from space.
0: Yeah, I guess the important thing is that they're both othered.
1: Yeah, yeah. Apostrophes are mostly for othering, I think.
0: Or, I'm sorry, I think maybe I should say othered.
1: <laughs> I think you should. I would like to hear, actually, Wolfman read some of his dialogue sometimes to see the difference with how it sounds in his head. Oh, man. Yeah, I absolutely 100% want a Wolfman book
0: on tape mm-hmm. of the Titans. Although I think I would have to skip all of the cyborg stuff <laughs> for fear that I would <laughs> die of second-hand embarrassment. Uh, yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into
1: the minutiae? Just one last thing, which is on that last page that shows steve dayton having his i don't know if it's a psychotic break or what but we we have like a new barometer for measuring how angry someone is and this guy is two dead rats mad
0: okay how many capital a's would you say two dead rats correlates to
1: oh that's a good question thank you um i'd say two dead rats mad is the equivalent of, like, probably eight to ten capital A's.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Conversely, how many dead rats mad do you think Barbara Norris is now that she's burning in Niflheim forever?
1: Oh, man, she's probably up to, like, three and a half or four dead rats mad. Wow, that's a lot of capital A's. Well, she turned instantly and completely super evil. Right. So... He, it's going to burn a lot of rats.
0: I would imagine so. You've got to have some kind of a conversion chart, like on the side of your uh, your Trapper Keeper folder, like the way they do for metric. <laughs> Capital A's to dead rats. Mm-hmm. Well, are you ready to get into the minutiae? Yes, sir. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Okay, Corey, I had trouble keeping this in during the bulk of our conversation, so let's get it out of the way finally. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you want to talk about, and why are they Bob Johnson's hat?
1: Oh, man. From Beast Boy's Red Adidas to Bob Johnson's weird whatever that thing on his head is, there was some stuff to talk about. But yeah, mostly Bob Johnson's hat. What the fuck is up with that thing? It's not a... I've... Don't think that they exist in the real world. It is the Subaru Brat
0: of hats. Like, it's not <laughs> a visor and it's not a trucker hat, but it's somehow both and less than either of those. Exactly, yeah. It's bad at both things. It's spread too thin. We have wildly differing opinions on Subaru Brats, which came up earlier. I rather like them. But this hat, it's an enigma. It, it is a trucker hat that stops after the mesh stops and turns into a visor in the very back, but leaves the back of the head exposed in a way that I have
1: never seen before. Mm -hmm. It's like if you cut a trucker hat in half longitudinally so that the back half is missing and then replace the back half with just like a strap like a visor would have. Right. That's what you got. Bob Johnson hat what would be the
0: utility of that it's already mesh in the back because it's obviously clearly a trucker hat because you get a little bit of the mesh you've already got pretty decent breathability back there i'm at a loss we need full breathability what benefit would that have over just a visor though i don't know is it to hide male pattern baldness because it does seem like it would just be drawing more attention to itself that way I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of this hat situation. Hat visor. Hatser? visat, Vat? Yeah, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of this vat anytime soon. So let's move on to some other fashion. You mentioned Beast Boy's sneakers.
1: Yeah, he's rocking a pair of kind of red Adidas superstars, which is pretty cool. Yeah,
0: not bad. Got the three stripes, the shell toe, pretty good. I was actually pretty impressed by Arella's look, both in that it made sense and in that it looked pretty good. She is wearing a trench coat and then what looked like kind of superhero boots and leggings under that, which at first made me confused if maybe she was Donna Troy. But I like the fact that it would make sense that if she was just raiding the Teen Titans like closets to put together an outfit after she gets back from Azeroth, that she would just be like, well, this is all they had lying around. They've got a trench coat to disguise themselves and uh, superhero boots and tights. So that's what she's wearing. And it's a really good look. And I also like that it's like, oh, that actually kind of makes sense that that's what she might find.
1: Yeah, I agree on all counts. It is a good look on the page uh, following the one with arella on it there's an inset panel of the tobacco workers that are the ones that find her there's one two three four five guys and it's kind of set off in the distance so it's not drawn in a great amount of detail but this is the thing that i referred to earlier that looks to me like either the album cover or like an album inset of this country southern rock band called uh tractor boys with a z you know it. Yeah, I can totally
0: see that. Yeah, you got a bright yellow t-shirt in the front. Tight. It is very tight. And buttoned down like silk black dress shirt, unbuttoned to the navel with a cowboy hat. Good look. We have the aforementioned Bob Johnson, who, in addition to his inexplicable vat, is wearing a plaid shirt and tight blue jeans and glasses. Mm-hmm. Bifocals. You get a couple other guys that are dressed mostly in cowboy boots. It's a little bit tough to tell, but you're right. It is a very album cover look in that they're all looking off in the distance in slightly different directions.
1: Mm-hmm. And the the guy that's drawn probably with the least amount of detail in the, and kind of in the background standing in the back of the pickup truck. Mm-hmm. The way that he is drawn leads me to believe he's wearing like a full on Jeff Goldblum cowboy suit with like the the wide like chef's coat looking top oh totally
0: like from buckaroo bonsai that jeff goldblum cowboy suit yeah
1: i assume there's others but yeah that's that's the (laughs) one i'm thinking of
0: yeah that's got like the extra folded flap like you see on like military uniforms Mm -hmm. i think that's a good call he's wearing a tan one of those and it is a good look and i am curious as to what the tractor boys music sounds like
1: Yeah, I got to think it's just like on the border of something I wouldn't really normally be too excited about, but it's just too good not to listen to.
0: Like, are you thinking more Southern rock or more country or kind of like a fusion of the two?
1: I'd say not a fusion, but that like they would do both. Okay. But just like keeping the genres kind of kind of separate. I mean,
0: so like a Skinnered Oak Ridge Boys type. Oh, nail on the head. Mm -hmm. All right. With a lot of twang. Oh, you gotta have the twang. All the twang. Especially if Wolfman's writing their lyrics. <laughs> never, never heard nothing lack like it. Any other fashion?
1: Yeah, I had some others, but just as a note, too, on that same page, this is the one where Raven falls out of the sky and her clothes explode. I guess they did that so that she wouldn't be wearing her costume, which would make everybody think something weirder than somebody falling out of the sky was going on. Did you have any other thoughts on why they made that choice?
0: Uh, I think sometimes your clothes just explode. I mean, maybe so that they could get one of the tractor boy's shirt off because it's sweeps week in the
1: comic book because he does take his shirt off and drape her in it. <laughs> Keeps his hat on though. It's a good look. Right. Very romance novel uh cover. Uh-huh. He has no nipples. I thought at this time in the comics code uh, male nipples were okay.
0: I think they are. He may have lost them in a tractor accident. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's why he
1: wears that silk shirt. Because <laughs> it's smooth and it's non-abrasive.
0: Right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know that the members of Grand Funk Railroad cut off their signature long hair because they were worried about it getting caught in tractor equipment when they were working on their respective farms. Hmm. So I guess as a safety tip, always keep your hair and your nipples short. If you're going to be working around tractors.
1: <laughs> I feel like there's so much to learn for people on this podcast. Yeah, well,
0: that's how we get that uh, educational grant funding.
1: Oh, yeah. Where's that money?
0: Um,
1: It's in a safe place. Oh, no. You invested it all in a aberdashery, didn't you? I did. You never should have put Popo in charge. I can't <laughs> believe you agreed to that. <laughs> He spent it all
0: on the new line of of vats. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. I gotta tell you, the Asgardians are not buying. Yeah, no shit. <sighs> I also just really love the Mento suit. The way it pokes out at the side, almost making little owl horns on the side of it, makes it look like he is just wearing a pillowcase over his head. It's a good look.
1: Yeah, I, I really like his costume too, I think, in the past when it's come up we've noted the kind of lucha libre mexican wrestler look that the uh, the face has where there's mm-hmm. a kind of lightning pattern border around the opening for his nose and his mouth yeah he's also got what are either like little decoy eyeballs on the top of his head or like a, like a, how a moth has those on its wings to protect its head
0: They look like little holes. It's possible that that's to let the mind beams out or possibly he was engaging in like trepanation and was drilling holes into parts of his forehead to let the uh, cerebral energy in. And maybe that's what drove him over the edge.
1: That's usually not advisable.
0: So, Corey, who did you have as the president of the drama club in this issue? Which character was acting the most dramatically?
1: Oh, man. I had three choices, but I think I've got a a clear winner. Okay. My three choices were Steve Dayton as the Freshmaker. Mm-hmm. Captain Karras, again. Okay. And also Arella. Oh, I had... Stevie D is one of my choices
0: as well, but other than that, I had Beast Boy as one of my choices, and uh, I decided to go with Cole, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought the whole, uh, you're in love with me, aren't you, despite the fact that you have said at many points that you are definitely not, was a pretty drama club move.
1: It was. Thank you. Were you leaning towards Arella as your choice? Nope. She just had one panel where she looks super dramatic. But the winner for me was Steve Dayton because of the scene in which he gets two rats mad at the end. He takes off his helmet and he scowls and then he screams and he screams in such a way his face becomes distorted and like one eye is bigger than the other. And he looks super whack, like just angry. Yeah, I can see that. And that whole page, actually, his face runs the gamut from pissed off to more pissed off to uncontainable fury. Yeah, I think when you
0: emote so hard that you explode a pair of rats, I think that is perhaps being overly dramatic.
1: (laughs) Yep. That's why for me, Dayton
0: is the P-O-T-D-C. President of the drama club. Okay, that works out. (laughs) The pot dick. (laughs) <laughs> let's just say president of the drama club.
1: <laughs> well, it's not technically an acronym unless you can say it like a word, right? So,
0: Right, so let's not use the acronym. Okay, that's fine. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you feel was most worthy of highlight? Well...
1: Oh. I was late to the party.
0: Corey, you brought a radar Sorry I couldn't hear you. Corey, you brought a
1: submarine's radar to an air horn party. Ugh Damn thing. I was trying to <laughs> I was trying to multitask while we were talking and bring up and I picked out the wrong sounding one.
0: Well I'm just worried that you might have an incoming torpedo. That's- <laughs>
1: It's probably just a school of fish. (laughs) Nope. That didn't even have a southern icon on it. I don't know what the hell's going on. Okay. Well, what all of our various
0: sound effects are alluding to is the fact that Beast Boy does say the word bozo. He lovingly, I think, calls Cyborg a bozo after Cyborg says that he doesn't always pick up after the first ring. Yep,
1: that tickled me.
0: It did me as well. It was it was a fun and very authentic feeling piece of banter between the two that I really liked, especially coming as it did immediately after a very tense encounter between the two.
1: Yeah, you could tell they really are old friends who have a genuine affection for one another with how quickly after Cyborg calls Beast Boy out on his bullshit, they revert back to, uh, you know, buddies.
0: Yeah. In addition to that, Natty B, we also had... A lot of pretty fun insults in this issue. One of my favorites was when Steve Dayton calls Questor a Quisling. I always really liked that
1: word. Yeah, he's a real Norwegian World War II Nazi collaborator. That seems a little bit harsh, but it's a good word. That was the last name of Quisling, was where that comes from. I know. I had to look it up again. (laughs) It's like, ooh, that sounds like a good
0: insult. What's that mean? I also liked when... Beast Boy picks an injured Questor up off the ground and says, I'm here, Questor, I'm here. Questor says, will my problems never end? <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down as well.
1: That was a good zinger.
0: But I think my favorite was the fresh maker himself, Steve Dayton, calling one of his fellow club members a sanctimonious piece of garbage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had that as well. Good stuff. Timestamps. What timestamps did you find in this issue?
1: Yeah, so you did mention the Richard Pryor one already, which I I thought was a good one because he was still popular at that time. Let's see. There's a bunch of them.
0: There really were. Cyborg had a bunch of them, which uh, I'm used to more coming from Beast Boy. Beast Boy did have a reference to Ali Sheedy, Mm -hmm. which definitely makes this comic take place at a certain time. But Cyborg also referenced Trapper John M.D. and Saint Elsewhere in in a single sentence, which was, I thought, pretty distinctive of this era. Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, M.A.S.H. too,
0: right? Uh... Trapper John was on M.A.S.H., but uh, his spinoff was Trapper John M.D. Oh, okay, okay. Which I didn't realize that show ran for seven seasons, Trapper John M.D. No kidding. Yeah, I thought it was a flop. I've never seen an episode of it, but yeah, I guess it did better than I thought it did.
1: Wow. Let's see, we also got Beast Boy and Cyborg having a banter about what movie to see. Yeah. And uh, Beast Boy says he doesn't want to see... Cannibal Holocaust Part 2. Yep. Which I did look up, and that didn't come out until 89, apparently. So maybe he was just making a joke because the first one was a popular movie.
0: I don't think it was that popular, but certainly got a lot of discussion. It had come out a couple of years ago. Yeah, the fact that either one of them would want to see that movie did play into my choice for a Beast Boy for this issue. Oh, really? So let's talk about that. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Beast Boy?
1: Yeah, this one was a little out there. I, I was certainly tempted to give it to Beast Boy for making his usual what he thinks of as clever sexual innuendo about getting a hug from Starfire, and then being so horribly crass about Questor's life being endangered, and just a general selfish Jerk, but because we saw what is the beginning of what will probably be yet another unsuccessful redemptive arc for him. But we saw him come around a little bit, so I didn't give it to Beast Boy.
0: Okay. I did for the reasons that you mentioned. What I have written down for that is Beast Boy. Damn it, Beast Boy. Questor is cool.
1: Yeah. Part of the reason why I didn't ding him all the way for it in terms of winning the category was despite his. I guess, callousness. You can tell that he's really shook up by the whole thing and the panel where they cart Questor off in the ambulance and he says, you know, just get better, do that for me. And his, you know, his head is bowed, his posture is really defeated.
0: Yeah, I mean, he feels bad, but maybe if he had gone when Questor called him for help instead of trying to ignore it and having to have a scuffle with Cyborg first, Questor wouldn't have been hurt so
1: badly. True. I'm just saying that there's elements of redemption. That's why I didn't vote for him. I did vote for Cole. Okay. Because I feel bad for Joe that she is like just really pressuring him to go steady or whatever. And he's not feeling it. And that was frustrating for him. And then also, and again, I know you can ding Beast Boy for interrupting her. But she was unsuccessful in her attempt to uh, first capture Mento in a crystal prison. And then Mm -hmm. also unsuccessful in preventing his uh, escape he was just too powerful, and uh, that could have saved the lives of a couple rats.
0: Yeah, I guess. I still
1: think Beast Boy was worse. He's objectively worse. I'm just, I I gotta do something to just not pick him every single time.
0: I get it. You're grading on a curve. Mm-hmm.
1: Conversely, who did you have as your Aqualad? I thought the remarkable amount of both patience, but also knowing when to wash his hands of a situation and his ability to catch a bird in flight while jumping out of a window and rescuing people who he is pretty sure are shitty people, but he does it anyway because it's the right thing to do. I gave it to Cyborg.
0: I was tempted to give it to Cyborg. I do like the things that you said, and I liked his performance in this issue for those reasons. And I thought he turned in a really good performance in terms of his conversation with Beast Boy and getting him to come around and act like a goddamn human being for a second. But I could not overlook a couple of things that he did. One, wanting to watch Cannibal Holocaust 2, which presumably means he watched and enjoyed Cannibal Holocaust on some level. And that movie is fucking garbage. I'm sorry, it's they killed monkeys and filmed it in that movie. And... It's fucking trash,
1: and you shouldn't be watching that. Oh, man. Bad job, Cyborg. Yikes, I didn't know that. That sounds pretty awful.
0: Yeah, they they killed animals and filmed it, and that was part of the background of that movie. <sighs> uh, it was monkeys and a turtle. They chopped a turtle's head off and filmed that as part of this, like, shock bullshit, and it's fucking garbage. So I definitely couldn't give him it for that. And also, he was lying to... <laughs> Beast Boy and saying that he broke up with Sarah Sims. <laughs> that that is not accurate. Yeah,
1: that's true.
0: He's apparently telling everybody that he broke up with a girl who preemptively dumped him despite the fact that they were never actually dating. So,
1: I mean, I guess he is a teenager after all, but that was not cool, Cyborg. Coupled with the fact that the conversation or the context in which he says that is, is about the importance of honesty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm still going to give it to him, but that, that definitely pokes a hole in the award.
0: I mean, I was super impressed with the fact that he jumped out a window and caught a bird in his bare hands that was really his asshole friend trying to get away from him. I thought that was really cool. I thought he did some good emotional work with Beast Boy. But between liking Cannibal Holocaust and lying about getting dumped in the context of you need to be honest with people. I can't give it to Cyborg. So I decided to go with Jericho just for his unbridled enthusiasm about going into space. Good for him. Good attitude. Nice job,
1: Jericho. <laughs> okay, fair enough. What was your favorite panel? Let's see. The art in this is, is really nice.
0: Yeah, Eduardo Barreto and Romeo Tangal again, turned in some really great work.
1: I think... Probably my favorite is one that maybe gets lost in some of the rest of the action, but it's on page 7, and uh, it's the kind of space funnel that pulls Starfire and uh, Dick and Jericho up into the Explorer.
0: Yeah, I was just looking at that page, and it's
1: really, really nicely done. Yeah, the perspective, very cool. You got Captain Karas's feet at the top of the tunnel and then the perspective all kind of goes down from there looking at the the top of their heads till it, you know its point of origin back down on the ground and the perspective is is handled really well and it gives the sense a a real sense of like movement and distance and i feel like that can be a pretty tricky thing to render
0: it is it's a little bit confusing too because it looks like it's like a very wet teleportation beam that i don't understand how that would work but it's cool looking oh because the crackle looks like bubbles yeah it looks like there's a fair amount of bubbles around each person and also like it just looks like a very wet tractor beam maybe like tractor beam teleportation (laughs) combo it's like a pink champagne
1: explosion exactly
0: maybe that is how they have to get up to the ship they can teleport down but to get back up They have to be shot out of a giant pink champagne bottle. Yeah, let's party. Go to space. Well, the Tamaranians are very emotional people, so they need to celebrate with pink champagne if they're going to leave anywhere. That doesn't follow or make sense, but it stays in. I had my favorite panel being one that I called the Crystal Freshmaker Explosion. It is on page 19, and it is... Steve Dayton in his Freshmaker suit, very dramatically repelling shards of crystal from coal as he is standing in front of what looks like a target. I think it's supposed to be him radiating concentric circles of mental energy, kind of like the way Aquaman used to do with fishes. But it looks really, really cool. Yeah,
1: that is a great panel. I like that one, too.
0: Yeah, it actually reminds me there was a Green Arrow mini-series in the early 80s where it's him standing in front of a target that looks kind of like that. And it's just a really neat looking panel. And I really dug it. Nice. I also had on page 17, just in terms of imaginative layouts, there's a Steve Dayton Mentos montage of him freaking out in his Freshmaker suit and... It's just really nicely done and it conveys this sense of like chaos and destruction and instability in a way that I think is really well done.
1: Yeah, man, there's a lot going on there. It's really good.
0: Any others you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, my backup and the reason I didn't choose it was because I couldn't narrow it down to what was my actual favorite was the whole bird cyborg ape cyborg fight that took place between pages 10 and 11. Yeah, that was a really fun, exciting scene. I don't
0: think the past couple of artists, I don't think either uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez or George Perez had a tendency to do the multiple images of a single character in one panel to convey movement, but Barreto does it a lot and he does it really well. And so it makes this kind of fluidity of movement for a Cyborg in those panels that I think is really effective.
1: Yeah, it underscores what great physical power. They have, and they're, you know, if that was like a fight between two normal people, it would have been really scary and dangerous, but because they're both so powerful, it's it's kind of evenly matched. Yeah, it's pretty great.
0: Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1987, and the month of our Lord, January, Wapoot! What was Aqualad probably up
1: to? So he wanted to go to the 44th Golden Globes because he had been pretty into just hanging out at home and watching TV and wanted to see who were the winners going to be. He did want to catch the whole thing, including the, the movies and everything, but there was a little bit of a miscommunication with Beaky that kind of set the stage for him, both missing the, the movie part and uh, actually being ejected from the Golden Globes. Oh. Yeah. So that started with, do you remember the old-time ginger beer or old-time fruit punch? It had like a picture of a pirate on it. No. Uh, It was a brand of a soft drink that I was into when I was a kid. And Garth was also into this. And so he had requested that Beaky go get him some of the old-time sodas. And uh, Beaky got that mixed up a little bit and returned with a uh, pouch full of uh, an old-fashioned oh dear the bourbon-based cocktail which is pretty sweet and so went down pretty easy which meant that
0: so wait aqualad sent beaky out to just bring back some loose
1: soda in his pouch no he wanted the bottles that came in these kind of stubby bottles but it's not what he got so he was just like (laughs) well i don't want to look a gift bird in the mouth so i mean i guess i have to if i want this drink but that was that was how that went down Okay. Yeah, not the first time. Usually it's in the context of, you know, being revived that uh, Beaky helps him out this way, but it is what it is. And so anyway, yeah, real serious buzz on. And he did show up and get a seat in time to hear the results for best performance in a television series, comedy or musical, which was a sweep for the cast of uh, Moonlighting. So Bruce Willis as uh, David Addison, one for actor, and Sybil Shepard uh, as Maddie Hayes, uh, one for actress. And he thought that show was okay, but he really liked the other shows that didn't make it. And in particular, the the Golden Girls, Sybil Shepard beat out basically the entire cast. Oh. Yeah. And he was fuming mad about that and started yelling, bullshit. <laughs> and uh also bruce willis beat out ted danson for cheers tony danza for who's the boss and um and michael j fox uh as alex p keaton all all lost to um to bruce willis which he thought was was garbage and wasn't afraid to say so and then security had to come and haul him away well he was yelling about golden girls and um and family ties so not not his finest moment, and I'm sure he felt pretty bad about it the next day, but that, that's one of the things that uh, Aqualad was probably up to in January of 1987. Excellent.
0: Well, that was one of the things that he was up to. The other thing that he was up to also had to do with awards. In January of 1987, William Casey, the at the time head of the CIA, decided to retire. And when he retired, he figured he wanted to do a little bit of fishing. So he called up Aqualad and asked him for some fishing tips. He knew that Aqualad was not that crazy about the CIA. So he was like, OK, so uh, don't, don't worry, I'll do something for you if you do this for me. There'll be a quid pro quo here. You tell me who you want to win some major awards and, uh, and, and I'll take care of it. And Aqualad was like, no, you don't need to do that. You want to relax. You're going to get out of office. You won't be in the CIA anymore. I, I want you to enjoy some fishing. I think everybody should. Just don't worry about it. But William Casey still had the call tapped and got some fishing advice from Aqualad and then told the CIA he like, hey, listen to this kid's phone calls. Anybody who he says nice things about, you give him a big award. The wires got crossed on this. It's a shame because apparently he had very strong opinions about the Golden Globes that year. But. What ended up happening was the CIA listened to Aqualad's fishing advice and based the awards that they gave out on that. What Aqualad told William Casey was, look, I know you want to do some lake fishing and you said you wanted to catch some catfish. You're not going to catch catfish there. If you want to catch catfish, you got to go into some muddier waters. And so that's why on January 14th, Catfish Hunter, the pitcher, was admitted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And Muddy Waters was enshrined in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because the CIA just uh, mixed up their orders.
1: And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Nice. I was wondering how you were going to tie those uh, together. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: thank you so much for listening, dear listeners. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for joining us, Corey. It was nice to talk to you again. Yeah, likewise. I had a fun time visiting you last week. It was a nice time. It was the best of times. Indeed. We actually got to, because uh, in Niflheim, they have different Netflix rules. We got to watch some of the, uh, the new Titans live action series together. And that was a lot of fun. That was fun. Maybe at some point we could like uh, record a bonus episode about one, uh, one of those episodes or something. I think that might be a nice time.
1: That would be a wonderful time.
0: Anyway, thanks for joining us, listeners. If you would like to get into touch with us, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can contact us via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at at ttwasteland@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also up in all the other nooks and crannies of the internet, spread out like jelly on an English muffin after you melt the butter in there because, you know, that's the way you should be eating an English muffin. Um, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're on Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram and Tumblr and... Uh, I don't know, LinkedIn, uh, probably Grindr, seacaptainsonly.com, uh, you know, the usual places you'd expect to find a podcast. And also, if you want to leave us a review in whatever podcast listening application you're using, I think that would be really nice. We've gotten some really lovely ones lately, and it's always nice to read those and uh, hear nice things about us, because that makes us feel happy. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash Wasteland. If you do, you get access to a ton of bonus material, little video reviews that I've been doing of classic comics. Uh, I think I might do some reviews of newer comics that I've been reading because I got a request for that. There's also the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that my wife Lisa and I record. And there's also a bunch of other bonus podcasts that Corey and I have done. So, you know, you get access to a ton of free stuff if you uh, kick a little money our way. So, I think that would be a nice thing for you to do. And also, it's just a way to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it. So thank you for that. In conclusion, what the fuck is going on with Bob Johnson's hat? And
1: where can I get one? <laughs> you have to go to a uh, Asgardian haberdasher. Oh, as run by Popo. Yep. Ugh, that guy is so fired. Yeah, he's a real sanctimonious piece of garbage (laughs) bye bye maker